everybody. Anne Louise Gittleman here once again for the First Lady of Nutrition podcast. And today we have a change of pace. I have a, he's actually an award-winning writer, a newspaper reporter and editor. His name is Gary Greenberg and he's just written a book called The Beer Diet. Gary, welcome to the First Lady of Nutrition podcast. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Now, what is the subtitle of this new book, which intrigued me no end? It's called The Beer Diet, How to Drink Beer and Not Gain Weight. All right, so let's just tackle this. I think this is phenomenally interesting. You know, I'm the daughter of a liquor salesman. And, I, and back in the day, I think it was Bud that was the favorite, the, the Bud and Rheingold beer. Did you, did you ever hear of that one? Yes, of course. In my, where, I, where I came from, it was Schlitz and uh, Rolling Rock and, and uh, let's see what else, Miller, High Life. There's a you know, bunch of them. So have the, has the beer dramatically changed in nutritional content over the years? And how does it relate to the beer belly myth, my friend? Well, you know, it's interesting, the beer belly myth is because anybody who knows any, you know, people who drink a lot of beer and they get a little bit older, they get, you know, especially men, they get this, you know, uh, beer belly. Uh, and that's what they always call it. But in truth, uh, scientists who study this kind of thing, rather than just eyeball it, uh, say that it's not the beer that's making people have a beer belly. It's really the total number of uh, calories and carbohydrates that they eat. Uh, so that uh, if you drink beer along with eating burgers and chips and French fries and all that other stuff, uh, you'll, get a, you'll get a belly. Now, whether it's a beer belly or a French fry be belly or a burger belly, whatever you want to call it, it's your, your, your total number of uh, calories and carbs that's produced this thing. Uh, so people blame beer for it, but it's not really beer's fault any more than it is the French fries. So then why is beer considered so healthy? Tell me about all the health values of beer. And let me just also preface my remarks by saying that many years ago, I was a spokesperson for a company that was a breast enhancement company, believe it or not, Gary Greenberg. And one of the ingredients that we used was a particular uh, nutritional element actually from beer that was grown overseas primarily I think in Holland or I think it was either Holland or Germany if I'm not mistaken and so I'd like to know if there's any real nutritional content in beer other than the B vitamins is there something good for the hormones and why do women feel that when they drink more beer they in fact can enhance breast size I know you weren't prepared for this but I thought I'd just ask <laughs> you anyways well I'm always happy to talk about breasts um, <laughs> But uh, I, I, I can't say other than um, that, you know, people who put on uh, extra weight with women, the fat's a little different than men. Men get this abdominal fat, which is kind of dangerous. Women tend to get the uh, subcutaneous fat, you know, which, is, which gives you um, cottage cheese thighs and uh, bat wings and all that. And I'm, I'm guessing that, you know, some of that fat would also go towards the breast. Um, I, th I think what they talked about in those days was the hormonal element from the hops. It acted as a phytoestrogen, to be exact. Oh, well, that's possible. You know, hops, hops have a lot of great qualities to them. They're, they're really very high in antioxidants. Uh, as far as what kind of hormonal reactions they would have in women, uh, I haven't really studied up on that, but uh, I wouldn't put it past, you know, hops or even some of the malt, you know, some of the... Uh, you know, some of the vitamins and minerals and malt might also help uh, with, you know, some kind of uh, estrogen uh, production. But, you know, it's very important. And I say at the very opening of my book that, that beer really isn't a health drink. Uh, the problem with beer is alcohol and alcohol is a poison. 
it's, it's, it's fun, but it's a poison. So you have to uh, always realize that no matter uh, what you're dealing with, that you, that you have to limit yourself. You can't just drink beer, it's not a health drink. Um, so the alcohol in the beer really makes it kind of dangerous and you do have to be careful. That said, beer does have a lot of healthy ingredients. Uh, the barley malt, which is used for most beer, has uh, a lot of, as you said, B vitamins. It's got uh, some antioxidants. It's got some uh, oleosaccharides, which are a type of um, carbohydrate uh, that we don't really digest. So the uh, little bugs in our gut, the, uh, in our microbiome, the good bacteria, love that stuff. So they gobble it up. So it's good in that regard. Um, beer also is somewhat nutritious. Uh, it's got, you know, obviously it's got some carbs for energy. Uh, some, uh, some amount of carbs is good. Uh, too many carbs is not so good, depending on the rest of your diet. Uh, the hops obviously have uh, a lot of antioxidants. Uh, hops uh, are refined and sold as uh, supplements uh, in some places. So they're, they're pretty healthy. And the other two things you have in beer is water. And as you know, uh, water is good for you. Beer is 95% water. Uh, it's important that the water is good water, but breweries tend to uh, purify the water, then add some you know, uh, minerals and other things for flavor. And the last element is yeast. And uh, yeast also is uh, sometimes given as a supplement. It's got a lot of uh, healthy qualities to it. So uh, there's a lot of good stuff in beer, uh, but you do have to limit your, your, your drinking of it. The, uh, the um, AMA uh, says that uh, for men, two beers a day is a limit. And for women, it's only one. Interesting, so, interesting, so, interesting. Yeah. But aren't there quite a lot of B vitamins in beer, or is that a myth? Because I, I worked in the... Um, the Department of uh, Women's Infants and Children uh, many years ago in the WIC program. So uh, I remember telling women, the women that were pregnant, of course, is that one beer a day was very healthy because of the B vitamins. Is that still a myth or is that still? No, I believe it's true that there are, there are vitamins in it. In fact, in Ireland, uh, Guinness beer used to be part of the, um, the plan, the health plan, and women could go into a, into a, a bar and they could get like a half pint of Guinness a day on the, on the state for as far as your health plan, because it was good for um, supposedly a promoted uh, lactation. So young mothers, uh, not pregnant women, but young mothers could get the, um, the beer for free. And would there be a difference between the pasteurized and unpasteurized? Yeah, well, you know, pasteurization basically kills everything. Uh, so in some regards, that might be good. It kills uh, some... Uh, maybe harmful uh, pathogens. Unfortunately, it also kills a lot of the good bacteria that would otherwise be in beer. Um, filtration also takes out uh, a lot of the um, a lot of the yeast and and whatever else might be floating around in the beer. I uh, brew my own beer, so it's not filtered and uh, it's not pasteurized. So it's probably got more healthy ingredients in it than uh, the kind of beer you would buy in a store. So why do you think there's such an uptick of all these breweries across the country? Is this just a, a, a fad that's going to come and go? Oh, no, I think it's here to stay. You know, I, I traveled years ago in the 80s. I traveled all around Europe. And when I got to Germany, I was really pleasantly surprised to find that 
each little town had its own brewery. And they brewed, you know, mostly dark beers. And uh, they were very flavorful. I could never remember the name of any of them. Usually, a lot of times, the beer was just named after the town. Uh, and I thought, man, that would be great if we had that in America. Because in America, <laughs> all we had was, you know, Coors and Budweiser and, and Miller. And, you know, we had like maybe a half a dozen brands. And, and that was your choice. And it was all the same kind of, you know, fairly tasteless lagers. Uh, but uh, in Germany, they had just a wide variety of beers. And um, they still do. The Germans uh, have per capita the most beer drinking country in the world. But um, in America, the craft beer industry uh, got underway, you know, way back when, uh, in, in probably in, I don't know the dates, but I would say the 70s with uh, Anchors, Anchor Brewing in California. And then Sam Adams, Sierra Nevada, these are early people who were home brewers who, who just started, you know, uh, uh, brewing their own beers and selling them and actually cut out a little niche. Uh, it's a great story of American entrepreneurship, how, how these little breweries took on the big guys. And now Sierra Nevada has a billion dollars in sales a year. Wow. So uh, when they were successful, uh, more people started wanting different types of beer. You know, it's, it's like, you know, you want fried chicken all the time or do you want to have other types of chicken or, you know, uh, other types of food, you know, just having the same kind of uh, lagers that you could get with your Schlitz and your malt and your uh, Budweiser and all that. Uh, people wanted variety and, and these, these uh, microbreweries could then create a lot of different types of beers and they grew small batches a lot of them, and some of them are only seasonal. You get it once, and once it's gone, that's it. You'll never get it again. So. You know, it's it's very hot right now in northern Idaho, and I'm sure it's the same way in Boca Raton where I'm speaking to you. But my question is, what is there about beer that makes it such a thirst-quenching beverage? I mean, I remember growing up, we always had a, you know, a cold beer in the refrigerator, and my father would enjoy it to no end. What is there about the beer that makes it so darn satisfying? Well, I think it's the alcohol in the beer that really makes it satisfying because it makes you feel a little bit better about everything. But, you know, any cold beverage, you know, especially if it's carbonated, will seem kind of refreshing. Uh, beer actually has, uh, in, in, in once again, going back to Germany, the biggest sports drink in Germany is beer without alcohol. Uh, instead of having Gatorade or these other sports drinks that are loaded with sugars and, and chemicals that make those funny colors, uh, the beer in Germany uh, isn't, they take the alcohol out of it and it's got all these great ingredients, like you said, like the good carbs, like the B vitamins, and they put some uh, electrolytes in it to help replenish your, whatever you sweat it out. And beer, non-alcohol beer in Germany is, is the biggest sports drink. So uh, very interesting. I don't know. I don't know if it's any more refreshing than water or Coca-Cola or anything to the palate. But uh, if you if you enjoy the taste of beer, then it's yeah, it's extremely refreshing to have a cold beer on a hot day. So you've been writing professionally for forty years. What made you write a book about beer? Well, I I also have been drinking beer for about over forty years. Uh, <laughs> I started it uh, basically um, at Penn State University in the 70s. I started playing rugby, and rugby is a very violent game. And after the game, uh, it's tradition to get together with uh, both teams, and you and you drink beer, and the same guys you were you know fighting with on the field become your best buddies. 
So uh, it was a social thing, uh, even if before I developed a real taste for beer, you know, it's just the idea of it. And um, that, that's really, you know, uh, how I got started with, with, with drinking beer. And as I got older, I, I began to uh, refine my tastes a little bit. And I found that I really preferred the foreign beers that were coming from Europe, uh, particularly Lowenbrau. Uh, it, now it's made by Miller in the U.S., but back then it was made uh, overseas in Switzerland. Uh, it was a Swiss Lowenbrau, and it was the best beer I ever tasted. And I, I actually spent a lot of extra money for a college kid to, uh, to enjoy the, the uh, imported beers as opposed to the local stuff. So in Germany, you said that they have alcohol-free beer. Do we offer that here in the States? Yeah, it's around. It's not as popular, uh, but it, it's around. And it's mostly used by people who are forced due to their health issues to uh, stop drinking beer uh, because of the alcohol or people who have a problem with alcoholism. And yet they still like the flavor of beer, so they, they drink the beer without the alcohol. So how do you mitigate the dangers of the alcohol in beer if you were to take a regular beer? Well, uh, the best way to do it is to limit your intake. Uh, as I said, two drinks a day, two beers a day is, is kind of the maximum that they recommend. Uh, two beers a day or less actually is healthful. Uh, studies show that having one or two drinks a day for a man and one for a woman actually uh, increases longevity and it decreases risk of heart disease, cancer, and all these other things. It's likely due to the uh, stress reduction uh, effects of alcohol. They, you know, we have a beer, you had a rough day, you have a beer and the alcohol kind of, you know, uh, makes it all seem a little bit better. Um, so the best way to mitigate the problem is, not, is to not drink too much. Uh, but there's a problem with that as well, because people like me who really like beer tend to drink more than two beers a day. As I say in my book, I average about three beers a day. Uh, and the beers I drink tend to be higher in alcohol and higher in carbs and calories. So uh, to, to uh, have more of that, uh, you got to understand that you probably are damaging yourself to some degree, but to mitigate some of that damage, there's a lot of different things you can do. Uh, number one is to really eat a good diet uh, the rest of the time. Uh, so uh, don't have the donuts for breakfast, have some, some oatmeal, you know, and then, and then you can have a beer later on or just skip the donut and oatmeal and you'll have a beer later on. But, um, you know, that's, that's one way to do it. Uh, there's supplements such as milk thistle is a very good, uh, very good for the liver. Um, you got to understand the liver processes the, the alcohol and it takes about an hour for the liver to process uh, the alcohol of one drink. So if you're drinking, a good tip is to uh, drink slowly. And what I always try to do is I have a glass of water between every beer, which will help flush you out, it'll hydrate you, and it'll slow down your, your drinking. Um, so it's always good to uh, drink slowly uh, because uh, if your liver can't process all the alcohol, it stays in your bloodstream longer. And uh, it's not only bad for your body, but can also be bad for your, um, your, your driving record if you get caught with a high blood alcohol content. God forbid. But isn't this true with any kind of alcoholic beverage, Gary? It is. And, and, and like I say, the one thing you can't get around is being, I call it the demon alcohol in my book. And I don't discuss it till almost the last chapter because I don't want to bum everybody out. <laughs> but, 
but it is the, the one thing that you can't get around that is dangerous in beer. So is your wife a, a beer drinker? Uh, she's more so than she used to be, uh, mainly because uh, I am and I make my own. And uh, her taste her, is definitely developing. She used to only like ice cold beer. She wouldn't drink a beer unless it was about, you know, 35 degrees or less, you know. Uh, whereas a lot of the good quality beers, you want to drink a little warmer because the coldness takes away some of the flavor. So when the beer warms up, it's more flavorful. And uh, she's, why? Yeah. Um, because <laughs> I, I think it's just a temperature might numb out your mouth a little bit and your taste buds. Uh, but if you ever know, you know, people who, who taste a warm beer often will say, oh, this tastes terrible. Well, they'll drink the same beer cold and, and, and it doesn't taste terrible. So what's the difference? It's the same beer, right? So the taste, the taste comes from the, uh, from, from the temperature of it. And with good quality beer, uh, it just tastes better. So you'd rather, taste more of it. With really bad quality beer, just like any kind of food, you want to gulp down something that doesn't taste good. You know, you drank the castor oil when you were a kid really quick, right? But the spoonful of uh, honey, you, you know, you'd, you'd swirl around your mouth. So uh, it's the same kind of thing. Do you think beer consumption is increasing in this country? I mean, I know wine was, has been so big for so long. Do you think beer is catching up? Uh, beer is actually far more popular than wine. Seriously, uh, well, worldwide, beer is the most is the most popular beverage in the world outside of maybe water. Mm. Uh, and it's been around longer than than wine and everything else. It's been around longer than just about uh, anything that men eat and women. So, what are the benefits of making? I mean, why are you making your own beer? I guess would be my question. Well, it's, it just uh, it started out as a hobby. I, I was interested in different types of beer. I would go out to uh, the local beer store and I tried different types of beers and see which ones I liked. And uh, during the holidays uh, one year, my wife went out and bought me a home brewer's kit. So I started uh, brewing my beer. The first batch was, was uh, miserable to do. I burned my arm. I, I, I forgot to you know, add more water and didn't account for the boil off. So the beer was, uh, instead of five gallons, I had about three gallons and it was a little bit heavy and, and uh, strong, but it wasn't too bad. And then uh, after that, I, I, as I did more and more, I learned how to brew a little bit better. My beer got a lot, a lot tastier. And it's, I, I equate it to making homemade soup. You know, you can go to the store and buy canned soup it's got all kind of the same ingredients that you might put in it at home, but when you eat homemade soup, it's just a lot better than the soup out of a can. And I think uh, that's, that's, there's the same quality to that. You're putting into it only what you want. You've got no preservatives. You've got no uh, pasteurization to kill things. It's just, it's just a, you know, it's a more honest um, product that you're, that you're making and, and drinking. And I think there's an element of ego in it that you just like your own stuff better. <laughs> so I, I know you're, you're a columnist now for, it's a newsletter that comes out from Newsmax. It's called Health Radar, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I'm not, they don't, I'm not really a columnist. I'm just one of the, uh, one of the contributors to it. And Have I also you, con contribute to, uh, I've contributed to Life Extension Magazine, AARP, and 
at my local uh, Boca magazine, and there's several other clients that I have. Uh, you know, I do some uh, blogs for people and other things. So I guess my question is, have you ever done a beer column for any of these other outlets? Not really. Um, my specialty is more health than beer. I mean, I, 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 I like beer and I'm interested in it, but I'm fascinated by health stuff. And, and you know, I'm 66 years old. I still play rugby. I still feel great. I don't have aches and pains. And I want to stay this way. You know, I want to stay this way as long as I can, enjoy life, you know, without any pain, without any disease. And uh, the only way to do that really, I think, other than it just being extremely lucky, is to learn what your body needs. You know, learn about your health. Everybody's different. Everybody kind of has different needs. Everybody has a lot of the same needs. But when you can learn how to, you know, give your body what it needs as far as nourishment, exercise, sleep, uh, stress reduction, and connections with other people, uh, you can really extend that, that good quality, uh, healthy living, I think probably till you're close to 100 years old, if you're lucky. And yes. So but it's, it's, it's not even about luck. It's about good hard work and doing the right thing day in and day out. I guess my question to you is really the, the relationship between rugby and beer. Do the two go hand in hand? Oh, yes, yes. Because, uh, you know, rugby is a full contact sport that you play without any kind of padding. Uh, so uh, it's, it's high impact. And after playing 80 minutes of, of rugby, you're even as a young person, you're pretty sore. And, it, and, and beer it kind of is anesthetizing. So it takes away some of that soreness. Uh, it certainly makes you feel good. Rugby players have great parties. They sing songs and they, and they play darts and they just have a, a good time. And usually it's in a bar somewhere or a pub or, or and, and it's just a very warm uh, feeling where you get, you, you get a lot of, a lot of uh, good things. You know, social connections are extremely important to maintaining health. Um, and uh, with rugby community, they're a, a great part of my social connection still. And I have friends now who are in their, you know, you know, early 20s. And it's and it's because they play on the team. And we all kind of I don't I don't play against them except in touch rugby. Now I, I pretty much retired from full contact uh, for the most part because of the concussion issue. Mm. But um, but uh, I still hang out with these with these kids, and it's not like you know I'm the old guy around. It's it's like we're friends. You know, I'm just friends with them. We go out to these uh, microbreweries. We hang out on the beach together on holidays. We we go on trips together. We go to concerts together. We go camping together, and and you know it just. Uh, and they're all ages, they're all nationalities, they're all, you know, got women rugby players too, and then you got obviously the significant others of, of the rugby players, so it's, it's like a big happy family. I, I love it. Uh, back to your book so we don't forget to tell people how to get your book. How can people get your book, number one? Right now it's, uh, it's available on Amazon. And there is another beer diet book out there. It was written uh, several years ago, but make sure you get the one by Gary Greenberg and it's got a blue cover and it's got the uh, subhead, how to drink beer and not gain weight. 
And so do you actually give people a diet using beer as part of the uh, dietary ingredients? No, I really don't believe in diets. I believe more in mindful eating because whenever you kind of restrict yourself from any particular foods, you're, kind of, you're asking for trouble uh, unless you just don't happen to like those kinds of foods. Uh, what I do, uh, one of the things I do, and I, I felt that uh, it's been one of the, the main reasons why I can drink a lot of beer and not gain weight, and I have not gained a pound in 10 years, uh, still the same weight I was uh, uh, even like 15 years ago. I put on a little bit for a while, but then I lost it and then I stabilized. And one of the reasons I've been able to do that is because I, I, uh, I fast one day a week. I fast from Sunday night until Tuesday morning every week without fail. And uh, it's a form of intermittent fasting. Yes, and which, it, and which, it, which I write about, yes, I agree. It, As you know, it's extremely healthy for your body. It, it, it triggers a whole bunch of wonderful health effects to uh, starve your body just for you know, uh, 24 hours. In my case, it's about 34 hours. Uh, and I believe it's almost like hitting a reset button. I do it on Mondays, because Mondays suck anyway. You know, you gotta go back <laughs> to work. And, and I'm also usually, you know, have, have uh, overindulged a little bit over the weekend. So when sure. Monday comes, I'm kind of happy to, to just take the day off from eating. And um, I think, you know, more than anything else, uh, it's like hitting a reset button. I, I think that that has really helped me to uh, stay healthy and, and keep my weight down. So do you talk about that in your book? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I give my book is kind of a game plan based on what I do. So I tell people up front that, look, everybody's different and what works for me, uh, it may or may not work for you. So what you, but the, the concept is that, you know, do something, come up with your own game plan. Here's a few ideas. If you want to do this intermittent fasting, great idea. I take off every January. I don't drink for the whole month of January. I don't drink any alcohol whatsoever. And that helps my liver to recover and everything else. Uh, so I, and then I, you know, I get up at 6.30 every morning and I ride my bike and then I come home and I spend at least 40 minutes stretching out and doing some calisthenics, you know? So uh, you have to do these things to stay healthy. And, and if you want to, you know, enjoy beer, you maybe have to do them a little, a little bit even more. So the, so the, thing, the thing that I like about this is that you're very real and that you've used your own experience for the, the fodder, so to speak, for your material. So it's based on a real life experience of, a, of, a, of an award-winning journalist for over 40 years. That's why everybody should actually buy the book. Yeah, and it's also, it's funny. It's a funny, entertaining book. If you look at the uh, reviews on Amazon, almost everybody says that, that, that it's very easy reading. It's enjoyable to read. I tell a lot of stories in the book. It's not, it's not you know, dry material about you know vitamins and minerals and antioxidants it's, it's stories about uh me and the people i meet and people like you who i've interviewed for stories who are who are, who are brilliant and, and some of the smartest people in the country if not the world on on subjects about cellular health and all these other things so i tell i tell the stories not only about you know what they say but maybe you know how they got into it how they made their discoveries uh how i met them whatever it might be I'm a storyteller, and I think I think people really um, relate to that, and it makes it makes all this learning painless. I, I don't disagree. Have you written any other books besides this one? Yes, yeah, a matter of fact, I have another book coming out uh, uh, next month 
uh, it's called the chelation revolution. It's about chelation, which is a heavy metal detox. Uh, all of us are, are, are contaminated with heavy metals. And they really um, sabotage us on a cellular level because they disable enzymes we need for ourselves to, uh, to function properly. So a lot of these diseases, uh, inflammation, heart disease, uh, cancer, uh, Alzheimer's, they're all linked to these heavy metals. Uh, so if you can get the heavy metals out of your system, uh, your, your body's gonna function better. And chelation really is about the only way to do that. So that book is coming out uh, next month. I don't have the exact date yet, but it's being published by Humanix Books, which is uh, the uh, publishing arm of Newsmax. So are you aware of the oligoscan test, which is a thermography type test, or actually it's a phototherapy test where they run a device over the palm of your hand and in five minutes come out with the intracellular heavy metals that are stuck in your tissues? I have not heard of that. Um, but you know, the problem, obviously the problem with heavy metals is that they don't really hang out in the blood. So blood tests won't show them. So Correct. You know, think, oh, you have a blood test, your heavy metal load is very low in your blood, you're okay but the heavy metals do settle in your tissues, particularly bone tissue. Uh, lead, lead and cadmium settle in your bones and you know, uh, mercury can settle in your brain. You know, it, it, it can, they can actually settle anywhere, but um, I have not heard of that, but I would like to uh, find out about it because that's one of the big problems with, with uh, heavy metals is detecting them and knowing who is contaminated and how much. Well, the problem is that they don't hang out in the blood. They're intracellular. They kind of hide. They hide in tissues. They hide in bones. And there's not a really accurate test. And for one who has written about this for years, as I have, as well as you right now, uh, I found the test to be extremely enlightening. So if you Google oligoscan, find out if there is an oligoscan practitioner in your area, they're a little, they're a little secretive about who does the oligo scan because many of these doctors are very avant-garde and cutting edge. So you'd have to actually Google that. And if, and if you'd like, I'll try to find you something in your area. It's, it's extraordinarily helpful. I had nine fillings many, many years ago that were taken out. Of course, they're loaded with both silver and mercury and copper, and I'm still stockpiling mercury. Yeah, I got high lead and cadmium levels. Uh, but I'm, I'm doing a, a chelation, uh, actually I've been uh, lately doing a uh, chelation suppository. Uh, most commonly, uh, the best way to really do chelation is in an infusion, but it's, it's, it's kind of time consuming and expensive and you need you know, anywhere from 20 and up sessions, you need 20 to maybe up to 100 sessions to get clear. Uh, and uh, there's some good reports on the suppositories, much easier to use, much cheaper. You do it in the privacy of your home and it's pretty painless. Uh, so uh, that's what my wife and I are both uh, in the middle of, of doing at this point. Well, this particular product, and with this we'll conclude, but let me just tell people that the name of the product is called DMSA. And because it specifically targets, it targets all heavy metals to some degree, but particularly mercury, it can even be taken before you eat a fish meal to kind of protect your system from absorbing the mercury in fish, which is so prevalent in this day and time. So the name of that book again is The Chelation. The Chelation Revolution. So we've got two books by Gary Greenberg, The Beer Diet, yes, The Beer Diet, and The Chelation Revolution, two great books by Gary Greenberg. Is there anything else you'd like to say to our people before we sign off? No, just uh, uh, cheers.
Bottoms up. L'chaim, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) I want to thank you all for listening to this episode of First Lady of Nutrition podcast, and we'll see you next time. Thank you, Gary Greenberg. Bless you. Bye.